Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. Welcome to church. Uh, My name is Joel. I get to be the pastor here. And I'm grateful, Uh, I say this often and it's true every time, that you made a choice this morning to be here. And I acknowledge that you could have been anywhere. You could have turned around on your way here, but you pulled all the way into Gehanna Middle School West parking lot and you got out of the car and you came here. And for that I'm grateful and for that I'm expectant that uh, this God that is not far, far away and disengaged, but this God that is close and engage and has an interest in speaking and moving in the lives of his people. I pray that you experience some of that today as we look at the person of Jesus Christ. A brand new series starting today. It's called The Curious Case of Jesus Christ. Uh, have you ever heard of the movie The Curious Case of Benjamin Button? In 2009, I remember watching the first 30 minutes and then falling asleep. That is my memory of that movie, so I can't vouch for the whole thing, but I did find it interesting that a baby is born with the physical characteristics and the ailments that go with old age, and then this person, Benjamin Button, spends the whole movie and and his whole life essentially aging in reverse, and when he's old, lived many years, he begins to take on the physical characteristics of a baby. It's pretty weird, to be honest with you. I think it's why I fell asleep, didn't want to see the rest of it. But point is, this person ages in reverse. And so what we're going to do for the next seven weeks is we're going to look at the person of Jesus Christ, and we're going to look at his life in reverse. Today's story is going to be about post-resurrection Jesus. Right in those, those 40 days that Jesus walked around on the earth after he rose from the dead, before he ascended into heaven. And we're going to make our way through the life of Jesus. And, you know, spoiler alert, Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about Jesus in the manger, baby Jesus, rewinding all the way back to that point. Each week, looking at just the person of Jesus, a story about his life. And my aim in this series is to tell stories about him so that we can become like him. Because that is ultimately the simple aim of a Christian person. If you are a person who has said, I'm in, I give my life to Jesus, I'm a Christ follower, then to put it simply, your aim is to be like Jesus, to speak graciously like Jesus, to be kind to others like Jesus, to rest easy and take a break like Jesus to ask great questions like Jesus, to to point people to the truth of Scripture like Jesus, to be interrupted in your schedule, but to do it joyfully like Jesus. And the list can go on and on and on about Jesus and the ways in which you and I can begin to imitate him or at least try to as we grow up in our faith. Paul who was a first century Christian missionary pastor, described the character or the lifestyle of Jesus in this way. He encapsulated it in Ephesians 5 verse 2 when he said, Jesus did this and so should you. You should walk in the way 
of love. And if you're asking the question, well, what does it mean to walk in the way of love? To, to put it simply, it would mean to live in an others-oriented way, to think about others first, to wake up in the morning and to not think, how can I make this a great day for me? But rather to say, how can I make this a great day for everybody around me? How can I be a blessing to other people, to my spouse, to my roommate, to my kids, to my friends, to my coworkers? How can I live this day in an others-oriented way? That's what it looks like to walk in the way of love. It's how Jesus lived his life. From time to time, as the pastor of this church, I get to hear stories about people in our church living this way. And I'm filled with a holy pride in, in just being so proud of the people in our church who are doing this. And when you hear stories like I'm about the one like, like the one I'm about to tell, you too would go, I love being a part of a church like that that walks in the way of love. I got an email a couple weeks ago from a, a teacher over at Chapelfield Elementary School, which is the school right on the other side of the parking lot that you parked in. And the email said, "Your church has a reputation of being a church that helps people. Can you help?" And by the way, I get emails like this from time to time, a couple times a month probably, and it's because of the ways that people in our church have walked in the way of love. They said there's a single mom. She just got here from Cuba. She doesn't speak hardly any English at all. She has a kindergarten boy. He doesn't speak any English at all. He's never had toys. And all they have are the clothes on their backs. Can Three Creeks help? And I said, yes, Three Creeks can help. I, I, and so we set up a meeting. I went in. I got to meet this sweet, sweet, kind woman and her awesome little boy. And, and through a lot of broken English and some Google Translate on my phone, I figured out some of the needs that this family had. And I said, can, can, can someone from our church take you shopping, take you to Walmart? And her eyes lit up, shopping? Sh like, like her, her mind hasn't even gotten to the idea of shopping because that's where this family is at. They didn't have winter coats. They didn't have anything. And I said, can someone from our church take you shopping? She said, that would be incredible. So I send a message to some of our key volunteers over here at our EL classes that happen to be on Wednesday nights in Chapelfield Elementary. And I said, hey, this is the situation. Can anybody help out? And, and this won't surprise you if you know her, but somebody named Hannah Tilly responded and said, what's the address? What time? Tell me how, tell me when I, I'm in. And so Hannah goes and picks up this sweet lady and her son and takes her to Walmart for a couple hours. They get medicine, they get reading glasses, they get winter coats, they get clothes. The boy has some toys and she just buys it all through Three Creeks as a way to walk in the way of love towards this family. Now this family has come for three weeks since then to our EO classes, and there's some other people now who have been building relationships with this family, trying to walk in the way of love. And Hannah, listen, Hannah had stuff going on. Hannah was busy. Hannah is busy. If you know Hannah, she's busy. She's got stuff going on. But that night, on a Thursday night, she raised her hand and said, I will walk in the way of love. And, and we go, that's a cool story. Here's the truth. Hannah Tilly knows Jesus. She's heard stories about Jesus. And because Jesus is the most compelling and influential person in the history of the world, Hannah is compelled to walk in the way of love like him. It doesn't matter where you are spiritually, 
how you feel about church, what you believe about God. The truth is that Jesus Christ, the person, the man who lived on the earth 2,000 years ago is, without a shadow of a doubt, the most compelling, influential person in history. To consider for a moment what Christ has compelled people to do for the last 2,000 years, you can't even come close to wrapping your mind around that. And nobody else comes close to having the influence of Jesus Christ on the lives of people. So for seven weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at stories about this man, this compelling, influential man who I believe was God in the flesh. And we're going to consider his ways, how he walked in the way of love towards others. And then if you call yourself a Christ follower, then at the end of each message, we've got to ask ourselves a question. We've got to go, hey, how can I imitate him in my attempt to walk in the way of love like he did? So here we go. We're going to turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We're starting towards the end of Jesus' life. In over seven weeks, we're going to work in reverse. If you don't have a Bible, we've got one for you. I can actually see the pile of them through the door. They're on that table right back there. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take one, take a big old thick Sharpie and write your name on it because it's yours forever, our gift to you. And today, if you don't have one, we'll put the, the verses on the screen so you can follow along. Luke chapter 24, let me set the stage for you before we read this. Jesus Christ was killed on a Friday. And on Saturday, all of his followers hid. They didn't really know what to do. They were scared. They were confused. They wondered if they had been tricked, if Jesus had played a three-year-long trick on them and that they had fallen for it. Jesus was killed on a Friday. But on Sunday, rumors begin to circulate. You know probably what happened, but they didn't. And they didn't have Twitter or the news to confirm it. Multiple sources. There's none of that. It's all word of mouth. The rumor is the tomb is empty. And Jesus' body isn't in there anymore. Some people are saying that Jesus rose from the dead, but a far more likely, it's far more likely that someone took his body, right? So did the Pharisees do it? Did the Romans do it? Did the disciples do it? Did they set this whole thing up? Who stole it? Who had the strength to move the stone away from the tomb and get the body out under the cover of darkness? Who done it? And all the detectives inside of everybody are going, what do you think really happened? This is on Sunday morning. Apparently, some of Jesus' followers, some women, went to the tomb to put spices on the body. And apparently, they got there and the bodies, did they go to the wrong tomb? The rumors are flying around. What happened to Jesus' body? Is it even possible that he really did come back from the dead? I mean, there is a story about how Jesus brought somebody else back from the dead. Can he do it to himself? These are the questions that are going on. Everybody in Jerusalem is talking about this on Sunday. This story we're about to read in Luke chapter 24 happens that afternoon. There's a lot of questions, not many answers quite yet about what happened to Jesus. Let's jump into this story in Luke chapter 24 we're going to start in verse 13. 
So verse 13 says this. Now, that same day, Sunday afternoon, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So verses 1 through 12, Abigail read them earlier. It's the story that I just told you. The women went, some people went, Jesus' body is missing. That same day, two people are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's likely they were going home. They had just traveled to Jerusalem for Passover weekend, which is essentially Thanksgiving and Christmas combined, and everybody goes to Jerusalem for Passover. Now, they're going to walk the seven miles, 90 minutes or so, if they're taking your average pace, back home to Emmaus. Roads were not new, but the importance of them was very new at this time. For a few hundred years leading up to this moment, Rome, which was in control of this area, they felt like roads connecting the whole world with roads, paved roads, was going to help them conquer more of the world. And so in a short period of time, listen to this, this is insane. Rome built 250,000 miles of roads. 50,000 of them were paved. They thought, well, it's certainly going to be a lot easier to trade goods. It's certainly going to be a lot easier for people to get around, for news to get out, for armies to travel. This is going to be important to getting the Roman way out to the world. Consider this for a moment. Consider this. For hundreds of years, up until this point where Jesus comes to the earth, for hundreds of years, Jews are groaning and saying, when is the Savior going to come? When is the Messiah going to come? We're reading it. We're reading about it. People have prophesied about it. We believe that it's possible that it could be true. But my goodness, how long do we have to wait for the Messiah to come, for the Savior to come? Meanwhile, God is using the Roman government to build a network of roads unlike anything the world had ever seen. Because when Jesus comes to earth, the news is going to have to get out. And if that whole system hadn't been built in the hundreds of years up until this moment, man, we can't even fathom the difference, that the, the speed at which this news of Jesus was able to travel because the Romans built the roads. And I think about that and I go, man, there are some times where I groan, God, when? You said you were going to, when's it going to happen? I'm praying for this. When's it going to be? And man, this illustrates that from time to time, it's good to wait on the Lord and not get what we want right away because he's got a better plan. It's amazing how God can use something that's so secular to do something that is so spiritual. So the two people are walking on these Roman-built roads and they're talking with each other, verse 14, about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked him. He already knew, but he asked him anyways. What are you discussing together as you walk along? Now, I don't know exactly how popular this road would have been on this particular afternoon, but it's plausible, likely, 
that a lot of people from Emmaus had traveled the seven miles up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And on Sunday, after it was over, they're traveling back. It's like I-71 on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. There's a lot of people traveling back home during that time. That's how this would have been. So it's not out of the ordinary for someone to be walking also on the path back to Emmaus. I'm sure that these two people passed people because they were walking faster. And I'm sure there were other young whippersnappers running by them, trying to get back to Emmaus quicker than they were. But they're walking, and Jesus himself comes up, I guess probably behind them, and says, what are you discussing together as you walk along? He kind of nudges his way in there. Imagine walking and having someone come up behind you. He goes, so what are you talking about? They stood still. They stopped. They stopped walking for a second. They're caught off guard. Their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus says, this is important, he says, What things? Jesus knows what things. But he says, what things? They don't really answer Jesus' first question when he asks them, what are you discussing? They're shocked he even had to ask because it's what everyone's talking about. Cleopas responds, are you the only person who doesn't know what's been happening the last couple days? And Jesus doesn't answer him, but if he did, if Jesus answered that question, he would have answered it like this. I am, in fact, the only one who understands completely what has happened the last couple days. You don't have an idea of what has happened the last couple days. Just wait until you find out everything that has happened the last couple days. I understand it comprehensibly. But he's not quite ready to go there yet. So he says, what things? And then they go on to tell him a little bit. They say about Jesus of Nazareth, verse 19. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified our hero. We had hoped he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. We thought our time had finally come. And what is more is it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, listen to this Sunday morning spin. Some of our women have amazed us. They went to the tomb this morning and they didn't find his body. Nobody can find his body. They came and told us that they have seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. And, and, and I imagine they elaborated even further some of their theories as to why the body of Jesus was not there. I, I, I'm trying to imagine how Jesus felt listening to this, listening to them recount what had happened to him. And he's just like, oh, really? You know, it's like we've been teaching my daughter Willow how to write her name. 
and she, you know, she'll write W, and she'll say, the first letter's W, and I'm, as a dad, I'm like, oh, is that right? Good job, Willow. Meanwhile, I wrote it on her birth certificate. I know how to spell Willow, but in kindness, I enter into that space with her, and I say, really? That's great. And I imagine this almost soft spot in Jesus' heart as he's hearing them emotionally flesh this out. In that narrative that they said, they talk about hope. They talk about disappointment. They talk about amazement. They talk about these emotions that they're having as they're talking about this. And I imagine that Jesus enters into this space with them. He knows what's really happening. And he's witnessing it right before his eyes. Jesus then says to them, and it sounds unkind, but it isn't. Let me explain. He says, how foolish you are. In other words, you're not, you're not thinking clearly, guys. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You understand what Jesus is talking about here is the Old Testament of your Bible, which was written way before this story happens. The New Testament is going to be written after this, but the Old Testament is what Jesus is referring to here. And Jesus, it's like the best Bible study ever that Jesus takes them through. Anybody who wants to go, how does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament? Well, Jesus explains all of it. He goes, my thick-headed friends, I love you. But, guys, you're picking and choosing the parts of the Old Testament scriptures that you want to believe. You've built this narrative in your mind that you wanted a Messiah, a Savior, a hero that would come and help reduce your taxes and free you from Rome. And lead you to freedom. Make your circumstances far more comfortable. This is the God that you have created in your mind. That Messiah is going to have to suffer. And you know that. These guys know all the prophecies. And Jesus brings them all to light. Maybe he added a few more that they hadn't seen yet. But he brings it all to light. And he's going, the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ. He has to suffer. Can't you see this? And he walks through the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi and points out that every Old Testament story whispers the name of Jesus. And their minds are spinning. I don't know how long it took Jesus to do that. I imagine it had to take him at least a half an hour of their walk to explain from Moses through all the prophets everywhere where the Messiah is prophesied. I imagine it took him a while. And I imagine their heads are spinning. They're going, whoa. We weren't seeing all that. And so they do what anybody, I think, would do. They say, Jesus, will you come over for a sleepover? And Jesus says, sure, why not? Look, look what it says. As they approached the village to where they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going to go further. I don't know what was beyond Emmaus, but Jesus based on not stopping with them at their house, indicated that he was going to keep going to wherever that was. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, 
For it is nearly evening, the day is almost over, so he went in to stay with them. Naturally, after a long day of travel, they are going to have dinner. And so the dinner is prepared, and they sit down to have some dinner. And R.C. Sproul, the great theologian, says about this story, it's one of the most glorious passages that we read anywhere in the New Testament. And I agree, and it's because of this part. Verse 30, when Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. How do you think they recognized him? Do you think it was something that happened? Some, some people have said that they think that it was because of the holes in his hands when he handed them the bread, they saw it and they thought, oh my, it's him. Remember, there's a story later on that Jesus is going to present himself to the disciples, his closest friends, and they're going to be like, is it really him? And he's going to say, look at my hands. It's going to prove that he is really Jesus. Maybe it was when he handed them the bread. Maybe some people have said that it's a familiar trait or quirk. Maybe it was the way that he slurped his drink. Maybe it was the way that he went, mmm, when he broke the bread. I don't know. But was there something that just set him off and they thought, oh, it's him. Maybe it was the way that he prayed when he broke the bread. He said, dear God, thank you for this food. In my name, amen. Gotcha. I don't think so. I think it's far more supernatural, miraculous than that. It says early in the story that they were kept from recognizing him. Almost as if they needed to be kept from recognizing that it was him for a period of time. So they could understand everything that was being said. So they could sober-mindedly receive what Jesus was saying. And then in a moment, when everything that Jesus set out to do that day was done, he found it to be the right time to reveal that he was Jesus, the resurrected Jesus the whole time. And then he vanishes. He vanishes. And I've gone so far in my imagination to imagine if Jesus was holding bread when he vanished, did the bread just fall onto the table and make a sound? And what did these people do when that happened? Did they look at each other? There's so much in this story about Jesus, there's so much about his character and what he was like and what he values the most in this story. I, I did the work of pulling out three ways that you and I can imitate Jesus because of this story. There's a lot more, I'm sure, and these are all pretty simple. I don't think any one of these will come as a surprise, but if you're anything like me, sometimes a reminder about the basics is better than something new. Here's the first thing I notice about Jesus in a way that I want to imitate him. Is number one, Jesus asked questions. It is a humble and kind thing to do to ask questions. It is not that complicated, but
but you and I both know that it's not that common either. To be the person who walks into a room and is more interested than others, more interested in others than having others interested in them, that is rare. It is uncommon. It is Christ-like to ask questions. It is, it is Christ-like to ask questions of people and listen to the answer and to let those people go to an emotional place, to let them air it out, and then to ask another question. It is humble, it is kind, it is others-oriented. I was recently talking with a family that they said that when their whole extended family gets together, the conversation, they want to have a deep relationship with each other, but the conversation remains very shallow. They even go so far as to regularly schedule these extended family dinners, but the conversation feels shallow, and the relationships, therefore, feel like there's, there's not that much depth to them. And I just simply asked the question, I said, when everybody gets together, how many questions are being asked of one another? And they said, I don't even really know. And I said, just, just go and observe. Go and observe your family gathering and just count the number of questions that are being asked between people. And so this person went back and said, not really. It feels like everybody comes with something to say rather than questions to ask. And I said, have a go. Have three or four questions in your pocket ready to be asked to others and just see how it goes. And, and the results are back that there's a depth of relationship and friendship that has gone way deeper because somebody started asking questions. Now other people are kind of, it, it, it's, uh, it's contagious, this question asking stuff. And I just love that this is not obviously the only place in the Bible where Jesus asks questions. When he's with his disciples, he asks him questions. When he's with people that don't like him, he asks them questions. He's, a, he's an inquisitive person. And it would be Christ-like of us to take the posture of, I don't, I don't need to say anything to you, but I am interested in what you have to say to this question. It's an others-oriented way to have conversations. Number two, Jesus, in this story and in other places, he points people to the scriptures. Consider this for a second. These people have never had a day like that Saturday. It's never been as bad as that Saturday. All the followers of Jesus have forsaken everything. Some of them their own families to follow Jesus. Everything has been laid aside. Their careers, their homes, it's been laid aside. And now, after Jesus has been killed, they've got to go try to make something of their life by picking up the pieces. It has hit the fan, some might say. And when it hits the fan for these guys, the questions that are going through their minds is, what is true and what is a lie? They're going to, to doubt everything that they have believed. And Jesus points them to the reliability of Scripture, and he says, has this changed? Has any of this changed? And in the same way, friends, we go through things in life that feels like it, quote unquote, hits the fan. We have these Saturdays where we go, the circumstances are not so good. And in those moments, we're tempted to ask questions. What is true? What is a lie? Is this, is this, is this even true anymore? Does God even care about me anymore? And in those moments, we see Jesus point them to the scripture 
and say, has this changed? And in those moments, hopefully we're surrounded by friends that will say, this hasn't changed. Maybe we even need to go so far as to remind ourselves, has this changed? He points them to the foundation that a life can be built upon. It's not a current set of circumstances that will keep you steady. It is the reliable word of God, the scriptures. Jesus points them to that and says, if it ever feels like things are spinning out of control, don't forget what's always true. Here's the last one. Jesus was willing, he was willing to let his plans be interrupted. It's one of my favorite things about Jesus. He was never in a hurry. He was never so busy that he couldn't stop and just be with people. Think about this. On the day, the day that he resurrected from the dead, he thought, you know what? Let's do a 90-minute walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus with two people that aren't even really listed anywhere else in the Bible. It's not lost on me that he doesn't go hang out with Peter and John. Jesus goes sometimes and hangs out with people that you might not expect him to. And he wasn't in a hurry. He just walked with them. Didn't give him his business card and say, catch up with me later. He just walked with them. And then he gets to Emmaus and they say, will you please stay? And I imagine Jesus had some other ideas of things he wanted to do, places he wanted to appear. But he goes and he says, sure, let's have dinner together. Jesus moved at a pace that was compatible with loving other people. I'm just going to be honest and say, that's not how my life looks all the time. There, there, are, there are times where my schedule is so packed, I, don't have, I have no room to move things around if something were to come and be an opportunity to serve. It would, I would see it as an interruption. How often do you let yourself be interrupted and have joy in that, knowing that it's Christ-like to be that way? Here's how I want to end today's service. We're going to sing just a little bit of a part of a song. But before we do that, I want to give you some space. And what I wrote down is that I, I want to give God a few minutes to nudge you. And what I mean by that is that all three of those traits or characteristics of Jesus, they're a little scattered. They all don't fit together necessarily. And I imagine that perhaps one of them jumps out more than another as a way that you might attempt to walk in the way of love like Jesus this week. So I want to give you some space to ask the question, which one of those attributes of Jesus do you feel compelled to imitate this week? If you had to pick one, or maybe two, but if you had to pick one, which one of those comes to mind as a way that you could walk in the way of love like Christ? Which one would you like Christ and his example to compel you in? We're going to take two or three minutes. I think the idea is that we wouldn't rush to the song or rush to the hallway. That we would give God three more minutes and ask the question, God, is there a way that you want me to walk in the way of love? You want me to ask questions? I'm going into a conversation with a spouse this afternoon, with a roommate this week, with a boss tomorrow. Do you want me to ask questions? 
Do you want me to be others-oriented in my conversations? God, do you want me to point people to Scripture? Do you need me to point myself to Scripture? After the election and the results on Tuesday, do you need me, God, to center myself back on your word and, and remind myself that nothing has changed about you and who you are and what you're doing? God, do you want me to be interrupted? Do you want me to just hold things loosely this week? When I'm, when I'm given an opportunity to serve, do you want me to take it? Would you just consider for two or three minutes those questions? And, and while that's happening too, if you feel compelled or if you have any interest in having someone pray with you, there will be some folks in the back that would be so excited to pray with you. The last couple weeks here at Three Creeks, I mean, you guys that have been around a while know that sometimes not many people take advantage of the prayer team. The last couple weeks has been amazing where people have said, yeah, a brother or sister wants to pray for me. How could I turn that down? And so if you would want somebody to pray with you, those people back there would love the opportunity to do that. And then maybe in two or three or four minutes, we'll sing a closing song together. Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com. Thank you.